It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, which would have been the beginning of the seven-day feast, starting with Passover, that initial day, on the first day, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That would have stood out because typically in that culture, carrying water was reserved for the women. And so a man who has a, a large vase in his arms or on top of his head would have, would have uh, stood out. And this was a prearranged sign that had been worked out between Jesus and some of his disciples in the city. We'll follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house that the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. To their credit here, notice, they don't start pointing fingers at each other. But they began to be sorrowful, and they say to one, they said to him, one after uh, another, Is it I? Is, is it, am I the one who could and will do this? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So here they are in the upper room, and presumably there is a larger group of people uh, probably a larger circle of disciples that are in the outskirts of the room. The, and he says, no, it's one of the twelve. The, my betrayer will be one of the men reclining at the table. And then he says, what I think are some of the hardest words you will find coming from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 21. For the Son of Man, which was a, a self-identifying title he often used, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You say, if, you, if you're ever looking for a passage in the Bible that puts divine sovereignty right next to human responsibility, Jesus says that his betrayal is predestined. I mean, it is going to happen. And at the same time, Woe to the Judas uh, who is responsible for these actions. And because of the severity of the judgment that will fall upon the, the betrayer, he says it would actually be better if that man had never even been born. I mean, that is, wow, those are strong words. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Our knowledge of the Jewish Passover meal, or sometimes referred to the Jewish Passover Seder, is limited due to the fact that the sources, many of the sources we have are dated sometime after the, the, the days of Jesus. You could say our sources are anachronistic, and therefore we can't be exactly sure if they accurately describe things as they were on that April evening, A.D. 33. But if they're accurate, if they accurately describe things, then we, we do have a pretty good idea of what the meal was like. How did this take place? Well, let me tell you. Once you arrived in Jerusalem with your family, you would need to find some room, some place that was large enough to accommodate not only your immediate family, but your extended family. You would place in the center of the room, by our standards, a short table and arrange around the outside of the table in a U-shape. Sometimes they call them couches, or I can almost imagine large pillows, almost. Couches or pillows, and you would sit at the table by leaning on your left arm and using your right hand and arm in order you know, to, to grab the food. And your, your legs were pointing away from the table, so your head was towards the table. Each other, everybody's heads are, are, are kind of there. You, you might be so close to the person beside you that, that you could actually lean up against the, the, the person who's sitting next to you. So when you think of da Vinci and his famous painting of the Last Supper, as there, you have 13 men sitting upright in wooden chairs at, at the table, you have to, that picture misses something of the intimacy and the comfortableness that uh, would have accompanied this meal, a meal that would, would last uh, into the later hours of the night. Sitting in the middle of the main couch in the crook of the U would be the patriarch of the family. So the, the oldest male would be the host of the meal, and he would be flanked by the guest of honor to his left, and the second guest of honor to his, his right. We believe that the guest of honor at this meal was John, the beloved disciple. And the second guest of honor at, at this meal was Judas. Normally, it would be your father. And it would be your father's brothers or the eldest son who would be the guest of honor. The father, the patriarch, would begin the celebration with a blessing on the feast and a blessing on the first cup of wine. So there were four cups of wine and after the blessing of the first cup they would bring the food in you remember the food don't you that they ate they would eat unleavened bread which would commemorate the fact that they had to leave Egypt in such haste they didn't even have enough time to put yeast into their bread bitter herbs to remind them of 
their many years of harsh servitude under the Pharaoh and under his officials. There was also some kind of stewed fruit dish, which I've heard described as this mishmash of various kinds of fruits, all stewed together, and it was to remind them of the, the mud bricks that they had to make, the, the, the bricks of mud and stubble that they had to create with their hands as slaves. Of course, the main dish was roasted lamb. It was roasted lamb, not boiled lamb. And the Old Testament goes into uh, specifics that you are not allowed to, to boil the lamb because the lamb was a sacrificial creature. And just because uh, the, the lambs that were and the goats and the, the calves, the bulls that were sacrificed in the temple, they were not boiled. They were roasted on, on the open flame. And so it was that this lamb, this sacrificial lamb, the blood of which was placed on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the house. This lamb would be, this, this lamb would be roasted. And it's interesting, I think, that ju- just because you were an Israelite didn't mean that you were exempt from the sword of divine justice. You needed the blood of a substitute to cover the doorposts of your household. So at this point, all of the food is spread out on the table. And the child would would say, it was kind of rehearsed, he would say, Father, why are we doing this? What is the meaning of these things? And the father would say, we, the people of Abraham, called by God to be the light of the world, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But our God brought us up from Egypt with a mighty hand. He brought us out through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he gave us his law, bringing us into the promised land. It was, it was at that moment that the father would go through and give all of the dramatic details of the story, the plagues, the Passover evening, and he would he'd basically be interpreting uh, your story. I mean, this was the story that rooted you as a people. I mean, if you ever wondered, what is my place in this world? Why am I here? Why are we here? It was this story. Next, they would sing psalms, the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113, 114, 115, the, the Hallelujah Psalms, because you have Hallel, praise, uh, Hallel, Hallelujah, Yahweh, praise the Lord. The second cup of wine would be brought out. It would be blessed and and shared. Then the father would pass out the bread to everyone present. They would eat the herbs. They would eat the fruit. They would eat the roasted lamb. Once the meal portion of the the evening was, was over, the head of the family would bless the third cup. He would offer a prayer of thanksgiving over this third cup of wine. And then afterwards, they would sing the rest of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 116 through 118. They would drink then the fourth cup of wine, and the ceremony would be done before midnight. And what a ceremony it was. I mean, you begin the night as a slave, and, and you end it as a, as a free man. These were the happiest moments of your life. 
if you were an Israelite, the thing that you, the happiest memories of your childhood would have been traveling to Jerusalem, finding that room, sitting down at the table, eating roasted lamb. Um, that would, that would be the highlight of every year. And, and the, the meal was done the same way every year. I mean, you knew everything that your father was going to say, every word by heart. Fast forward to Jesus' day. So there he is. He's center, sitting on the center couch at the crook of the U as the patriarch of the family. And, and we're having a really pleasant Passover meal here together. I mean, it, everything is going swimmingly until the point during the, the passing of the matzah when the patriarch is supposed to say, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came from the land of Egypt. Instead, this is my body. Well, you know that Jesus is a rather eccentric person, and so you're, you're willing to almost let that one go. <laughs> that, that deviation from the Passover script, we'll just, we'll give him a, we'll, we'll let him, we'll just ignore it and act like it, it never happened. Everybody gives each other a, an uncomfortable look out of the, the corner of their eye. But then you come to the blessing of the third cup. And he is supposed to say, this is the cup of redemption through which God redeemed us from Egypt. And instead, he says, this is my blood. And Jesus has just ruined your Passover. I mean, you're Jews. You're not even allowed to eat the blood of, of an animal. Raw meat with the blood still left inside of it is something that is completely forbidden to you because the blood represents the life of the animal and that is reserved entirely for God. And so not only is this scandalous, it's, it's sacrilegious. The, the blood of a man, he's absolutely gone nuts. <laughs> it's like a modern day pastor standing up and saying, you know, Christmas is my favorite time of the year because it's all about me. Um, <laughs> I love Easter because it's, it's all about me. Your, your Thanksgiving Day turkey symbolizes the meaty preaching that, you, that I supply every Sunday. The 4th of July... My flashy brilliance. You know, it's, who, who is this man? You know what he's done? He has taken the central event of Israel's history on the holiest day of Israel's calendar, and he's put himself at the center of their story. Why would the sacrifice of a four-legged woolly quadruped, uh, why, wouldn't, why in the world would the sacrifice of a, of a little lamb divert, exempt people from divine justice? It's because he's put himself at the center of Isaiah 53, 6, that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why, why would he speak of 
his blood being the blood of the covenant. Well, that language is taken from Exodus 24, 8, where it says that Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it over the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that I have made with you. The, the blood uh, not merely didn't merely cover their sins, but it ratified the covenant relationship. So Kevin DeYoung, he put it this way, and I, I gained several great insights from him in this sermon. He said, it's like in marriage, because of that ring on your finger, because of the ring on your finger, I will love you for better or worse. Because of the sprinkled blood, I promise to rescue you from the enslaving powers of evil. It just so happens to be my blood. It's really hard for us as is, is non-Jewish people to understand um, how, how silly, how scandalous, how grotesque, how infuriating, how puzzling it was for one man to turn a thousand years of Jewish history upside down in the course of an evening. It's powerful stuff. Well, okay, fast forward to a couple months ago. I was walking with a friend of mine from All Saints through downtown Boise. And he he said to me, Brad, no offense, but we probably wouldn't attend All Saints if it weren't for the fact that the Lord's Supper is celebrated every week there. Um, And I said, I'm not offended at all. I'm right there with you because it's, it's that important to me too. I find it strange that it's not more important to more of our brothers and sisters in Christ and churches throughout the Treasure Valley. I'll, I'll liken it this way. So imagine in this illustration that you have an uncle who is a lifelong bachelor, never had children before, but you happen to be his favorite niece or, or favorite nephew. You, you've spent long hours together sort of sharing your life he loves you, and he's, already, he's told you that, that you're going to get the largest portion of his estate. He's written you into his will, and he only has a few days left to live. And you walk into the hospital room, and your, your beloved uncle smiles up at you, and he takes your hand, and, and he says, Do you remember our tradition of Saturday morning breakfasts? And you're like, Of course I do, uncle. No, we got pancakes together. Blueberry syrup loaded. We'd, we'd talk and laugh. He says, promise me, promise me something. Promise me that every time you drink your Saturday morning cup of joe, you will thank God for the good times we had together. And would you make that promise to your uncle? Of course you would make that promise to your uncle. I mean, taking that cup of coffee would be like one of the most precious moments of every week. And in the same way, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's just strange that, that our, our Lord's last dying wish is one that is too infrequently uh, granted and commemorated by his people. So yeah, uh, it's very important to me that we celebrate the supper every week. What is happening in the Lord's Supper? That's one of the, the great questions of, of 
theological, theological textbooks in church history. I'm really, I'm hesitant to ask the question, what's happening in the Lord's Supper? C.S. Lewis said, uh, look, remember the command that Jesus gave is to take and eat, not take and understand. <laughs> uh, and he said, we ought not to be tormented by the question, uh, what is this? What's happening here? And you also probably know that, I mean, we've killed each other over the supper. Christians slaughtering Christians over what the supper means. Now, that's a little oversimplistic because, I mean, if you go into medieval Europe and study the religious wars, you're going to find that uh, they had a whole lot to do with geopolitics and one culture warring against another culture. It, it, it may have been a theological battle on the surface, but there was a whole lot more going there. But nevertheless, one position holds that when the priest lifts up the consecrated host and he says, hoc est corpus meum, he doesn't say that anymore because they, they hardly ever, um, you know, use the Latin, but hoc est corpus meum, at that moment you hear a little communion bell ring and everyone looks up and, and the priest, see, they see the, the host and the priest's hands and they know that the, that, that piece of wood or bread <laughs> has been transformed into the physical body of Jesus. Well, why don't we believe that? There are very good reasons not to think that that's what was happening in Mark chapter 14. For instance, when the patriarchal head took the bread, he said, this is, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate. There's not a single Jew in the room who would believe that at that moment, that bread had been transformed into a 1,500-year-old piece of matzah that was from the days of Moses. They, that was just the language of institution, the ceremony. Another reason why we don't think that's what's going on is because it, it, for, for you philosophers, it's, it's based on Aristotelian metaphysics. It's, it's, it's all Aristotle. The idea that objects have an external accidents, sort of external characteristics and properties, and an inner essence or substance. So according to Aristotle, or according to the church interpreting Aristotle, the accidents of, of bread and wine, it looks and tastes and is totally, the outside bits and pieces are, are bread and wine, but the inner essence has been turned into the physical body and blood of Jesus. I, I just, the, the, these are Jews. They don't, they don't know Aristotle. They weren't working with the, uh, those categories. If all you have in your philosophical toolbox is Aristotelian tools, then I suppose that does an acceptable job. But the fact is, we've got a lot, much larger toolbox today, and the other end of the, of the Christian spectrum is the one that says the bread is, is merely symbolic. All of this is merely symbolic language, and the purpose is the sup, of the supper is for us to remember the great event, kind of like we remember an event on a birthday or on an anniversary. In our tradition, we believe that something much more is happening. And we base that—do you know what we base that on? Principally— 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, where Paul writes, Is not the cup of blessing that we bless 
Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What you may never have been taught, the debates between the early Roman Catholics and Reformers wasn't over, do we feed on the body of blood and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper? It was a question of how do we feed on his, his body and blood? And they said we feed physically, and along comes a guy by the name of John Calvin, and he says that the life of Christ is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. It happens spiritually, spiritually meaning through the work of the Holy Spirit. Quote, his life passes over into ours, and we feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. The bread doesn't undergo any changes, but we certainly and truly feed on the body and blood of Jesus, and it's the Holy Spirit who makes that happen. That's why it's so important to us that, that we do this on a, on a regular basis. You look at it and you say, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, it's such a small piece of bread. It's sm- such a tiny little cup of wine. How in the world could something like that pro- produce the results that you're speaking about? Well, how did we even get to the place where it was small bread in plastic cups? Well, very early on in church history, they they realized that to, to have a full-blown meal every Sunday was rather cost-prohibitive. And you get into all kinds of questions about who's going to bring the food and who's going to pay. And very early on, they realized that Jesus was instituting a ritual meal. And so in this ritual meal, they believed, and we agree, that the that smaller quantities could be substituted. The quantities may be small, but they would say, make no mistake, you are still partaking in a spiritual feast because Jesus' body is real food, as he said, and my blood is real drink. What should you be thinking about during the Lord's Supper? Oftentimes, you take the bread and you bow your head as I do and you kind of look at your shoelaces and, and you kind of bl- blank. Like, what, do, what am I supposed to be thinking about here and now? Let me answer that question by, you may be uh, aware that the Lord's Supper goes by a number of different names or titles. And each one of those names highlights a different aspect of, of the Supper itself. And so, Here's maybe a way to think about what you should be thinking about. Think about, number one, title name, Eucharist. It is taken from the Greek word Eucharistia, and it means Thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper is the best time of the week, the absolute best time to go through your gratitude list and thank God for any and everything that he has done for you. Eucharistia. And it's perfectly appropriate to focus on the sacrifice of Jesus and, and to thank him for the cross. Uh, it's, isn't it noteworthy that when I say the words of institution on the night that Jesus was betrayed, isn't that interesting that the way the supper has been immor- uh, 
memorialized to us those words of institution every single time we say it we talk about it as the night that Jesus was betrayed so you thank him for for undergoing that kind of suffering and all the suffering that would transpire in the next 24 hours Eucharistia number two you've heard the word mass spoken before we, we hardly ever talk about mass in our in our church tradition but in the early centuries of the church, at the end of the Lord's Supper, the priest presiding over the meal would say, Ita Misa Est, which meant, go, you are sent out. Now, that's, that's what Mass was the, the sending out. I know that when you come in here on Sundays, you do feel overwhelmed about the coming week, and you have to actually work mentally to not let the worries of the week and, and other things distract you, either during the sermon or during the songs or prayers. Well, the, the Lord's Supper is the time to take strength and say, this is, this is the feeding of my soul from the manna of heaven that is going to strengthen me to go back out and face all of the junk of my life. I will go in the strength and the power of the Lord, which he gives me now. And you ask him to prepare you to be bold and courageous. And, and it's the supper that sends you out. Number three. You've heard the word communion spoken of before. If you look up the definition of the word, to commune is to share or exchange intimate thoughts and feelings with another person. Uh, the supper is a perfect opportunity to talk with Jesus rather intimately about what's going on in, inside of you. But they say that the essence of communication is simply to unmask what's going on in here. And so taking your thoughts, feelings, desires, wishes, and making a clear communication of those to another person. Well, the Lord's Supper, I mean, that, that's the time for you to do that with Jesus to share or exchange intimate thoughts and feelings with another person who is real. And when you do that, when you commune with Christ at the supper, you're going to grow in intimacy with him. Your, your relationship with him is going to become more real. You're going uh, it, to, it, it'll be transformative. The number four, remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. I think I've told you that there, there's an accepted alternative translation to that verse in the Greek, and it's, do this as my memorial. And in the Bible, what you find is that most of the, the memorials that are offered, many of them have the purpose not of reminding you of something that God has done as, as much as it is to remind God of something that he has promised. So when you get a rainbow up in the sky, that's not, that wasn't primarily for Noah to look up and say, oh, that was primarily for God to look down and say, I promised. And so, Peter Lightheart writes, the, the blood of Christ was shed once for all, but each time we break bread and drink wine before the Father, we display the memorial of Christ's sacrifice to remind him of that once for all act. And when he sees the blood of the lamb, so to speak, he renews his covenant and he announces his forgiveness afresh and he feeds us with the finest of foods. 
then did I say the last one was the last one? This is this is the last one. Number five. Totally what pastors do. They're always adding one more point. Body. Many times the best way of eating the Lord's Supper is to just sit up perfectly sh- straight and with your eyes open looking around the room at the body of Christ. It's, it's comfortable for, for some of us to just curl up in a little ball and close our eyes and have this private spiritual moment. But J.A. Packer says, says, yes, the famous Anglican, uh, yes, I, I do spend time with my head bowed in prayer. I look at the bread and cup in my hand. I remember Christ's sacrifice and his realness. But then I look at my brethren and I remember that this new covenant he speaks of, it's far more than just my own forgiveness and redemption. I look at my brethren and I realize that other people are doing that to me too. They're looking around the room. And here's what I love. And it's, it really is a warming thing when you catch the smile of your brother or sister thinking, me too, us too. He died for us too. Well, let me conclude with this. I four cups of wine. Jesus refused the final cup of wine, the fourth cup. That was considered the cup of consummation. It looked forward to the day when uh, we are with God and his eternal kingdom and all is made well and, and everything sad becomes untrue. And um, Jesus says, I'm not drinking that yet because, because the marriage supper of the lamb was, was yet to come. So he screwed up the passing of the matzah. He, he screwed up the third cup. He, he, he twisted around. He, he didn't even do the fourth cup. Imagine the reactions in the room. You can almost see in your mind's eye, Peter, furious that Jesus is still talking about dying. And on such a special evening of all the times to be talking about his death. And then there's Thomas with a glazed over look in his eye, giving a little shake of his head. He hasn't understood more than a third of all that has gone on before. And he certainly doesn't understand this. And then there's John as it says in his gospel, reclining, leaning upon the breast of Jesus in the seat of honor, looking up at him in astonishment and love and fear. And then there's Judas, frozen in his place, wondering how much Jesus knows and how much has Jesus already guessed. And then there's us. Us too. <laughs> and you get the reversal of the garden. Uh, remember, in the garden, everything comes apart. Did God really say uh, that you're not allowed to eat? I mean, when I get to break the bread, I get to, like, do the reversal of the garden. Because God did say, um, do not eat. And now he says, take and eat. This is my body. It's the great reversal. Um, it's the greatest thing. I, I truly believe it. The Lord's Supper is, is the greatest moment of the week. It's the greatest time of our lives. It is, 
is the greatest intimacy we know with Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for the supper that he provides. We'll have the musicians come back up.